Hello and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater. Uh, this week we are reconvening after Catherine has made her big, big move to the big, big city, Paddington Bear style, uh, <laughs> and has gotten set up in the lovely and surprisingly um, forward-thinking nation of Sweden. <laughs> um, so we're, we're back. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a catch-up episode. Both of us have used the extended holiday break period to look at some new stuff to put some new films on our eyeballs but yeah so we're back uh joining me as always is Catherine, my sister and uh we have many thoughts there have been mm. uh many films to release over this holiday period and i think the first that we wanted to talk about the first we had sort of chatted about discussing is one that has been on the lips of many genre film fans over the past few weeks and uh, i guess almost a month or a week shy of a month since its release. And that of course is the matrix resurrections, right? The so new uh, matrix. to get them right, to get the sequels, right? It is the matrix, mm -hmm. the matrix reloaded, reloaded, the matrix revolutions. And now the matrix resurrections. I am uh, going I to go ahead and agree <laughs> with half in the bag with uh, Mike and Jay, that it should have been called matrix rebooted. That rebooted, would have been great. Yeah. I think it would have added, maybe they were a little afraid of being too meta there, being like, hey guys, we actually use this term in the <laughs> film industry for what we're about to do. Um, so maybe it's a bit too on the nose, but uh, I think a lot of it comes from from Lana Wachowski becoming obsessed with the idea of, of bringing these characters back to life. Yeah. Um, so the, the Matrix Resurrections is is the, the long-awaited Matrix four, if you just want to call it that, or M4 as it's referred to in the film. Um, and, and it is a, a controversial film. A lot of people have not cared for this direction. Um, and all it did for me was bring back really the discussions surrounding the original matrix sequels, which I think were treated almost identically by a fan base that was dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. with the direction that the films went uh not not as much with reloaded definitely with revolutions um people people were were very displeased with the approach that the films took um i don't know if i ever really felt that way i've certainly made the joke and even on this podcast i think of being like are there matrix sequels what are they? <laughs> but i think really uh as i've rewatched them over the years and i have several times reloaded more than revolutions i think revolutions is still kind of a rougher watch in a lot of ways but I, I really appreciate what the Wachowskis were trying to do in expanding the world building of that Matrix universe and trying to dig deeper into the relationship between humans and programs and, you know, the, the dependency of them and the, the interdependencies, I guess, of, of being, you know, the machine world and, and the human world and how they interact. I think they're, they're films that were maligned unfairly because they weren't as fresh as the original. Yeah. And, um, and the original Matrix is one of those, you know, we said on the last episode that Tremors is a perfect film. Mm -hmm. The Matrix is another one. Yeah. That it's, it's as a standalone film, the Matrix is basically perfect. Yeah. The script is perfect. The acting and performances are, are nearly perfect. There are, you know, I think maybe Joey Pants gets a little bit too hammy at times. I but, love Joey Pants. But he's so good <laughs> that you don't really care, right? It's, it's fine. Um, but I mean, the original Matrix is it, it is it is is it ends perfectly and then falls into the standard sequel trap of we have to we have to roll this back. Right. Yeah. 
and and it, you know people didn't like that because I remember I was there opening night midnight oh, yes. show I was there for Matrix you. Reloaded um I was there with all the the little little high school kids and their black leather trench coats and their weird sunglasses I was behind two back hair. very very fragrant gentlemen who were talking about Skeletor so very fragrant we'll never forget that and and then I was also there for the opening day of Revolutions where the theater yeah. was empty <laughs> so um you know it was a it was an earlier show so you know maybe it was kind of like the early bird show so I, it was a bit understandable but there were literally like three other people in the theater whereas Reloaded was packed yeah. to the yeah. gills <laughs> So uh, this is another sequel to The Matrix made by the same people who made the others. So if you were going in expecting something other than what they've given you in the past, I think that's more on you than it is on them. Especially if you've followed the Wachowskis and what they've been up to for the past I was just about to say that. Like their their filmmaking credits are are what you would call a mixed bag. Um movies that appeal to very specific kinds of people and specific groups of people, you know, and who can even say what those groups are in some cases? Yeah. I mean, we've done, we've done one of a couple of their movies on here. We talked about speed racer, uh, which Good. was a very weird movie. Um, and it does not have universal appeal and the matrix was lightning in a bottle. I mean, it had universal appeal, mm-hmm. but it, I wouldn't ever expect them to recreate that magic. And I think that's what this right. movie is all about. Yeah, I guess, you know, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, we'll just sort of briefly summarize the plot. And and we, we probably will delve into spoilers slightly in this discussion. So if you haven't seen it at all, um, I mean, obviously it's showing theatrically. It is available for streaming on HBO Max, I believe, for another uh, couple of days, another week or so. Um, so you can certainly go check it out there. Or if you just don't care, you know, you're welcome to continue listening. But the basic setup is that we are now um, an indeterminate number of years in the future. Thomas Anderson is seemingly alive again in the Matrix. But instead of being a sort of down on his luck computer programmer working for a mega corporation, he is now the most famous video game designer in the world who is being called upon to make a sequel to his fantastically popular trilogy of, a, of uh, original video games known as the Matrix Trilogy. And so because of corporate interests, he is being called upon to make a sequel, which opens up a huge grab bag of emotions and feelings and medications, and and he is, is forced to confront things that he has not confronted for seemingly many years. Uh, concurrent with that, we have a group of characters, presumably from outside of the Matrix, who are observing these events and specifically a program that our good Mr. Anderson has set up to run some, some tests to try some things using the code of his original games. And, uh, and that sort of kicks off our experience. So what were your, your sort of overall thoughts on resurrections before we get too specific? It's very much like the two sequels. I mean, I don't see, I mean, I don't think anything could be like the original matrix. And what I liked about this one is that unlike the Matrix sequels from the early 2000s, this really wasn't trying to be the first movie. Um, I think it kind of makes fun of the idea that you could recreate that experience, that you could ever touch that kind of of glory again as a filmmaker. Um, You know, the Matrix was singular. It was very, very special. And 
you can't make something like that happen again, no matter how hard you try. You can only try to do new things. And in that regard, I don't think the movie's doing anything especially new. Uh, but I, I, I enjoyed it. I had a really good time watching the movie. Um, mostly because I, I went into it with really, really low expectations. I don't, and that's not like a... Which always helps. It's not I mean, an insult. It's just yeah, it's you got to manage your, I just, your stuff here. You know, yeah. I, I can't spend my days and nights being upset about movies anymore. So I go into them thinking like, well, this is probably going to be terrible. <laughs> and then I end up pleasantly surprised. And I was very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think I think this is it's kind of where I was, too. I was certainly excited. Uh, the more that they had shown sort of, of the visual look of the films, you know, some of the marketing and poster materials. I was like, yeah, this this looks really good. But I also knew that the Wachowskis as filmmakers, and in this case, we should say just Lana Wachowski, Lily chose to not return and work on this. But I, you know, and I've watched everything they've put out um, apart from Sense8. I've seen like half the first season of Sense8 and I really enjoyed what I saw, but I didn't really feel compelled to continue it. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently a lot of not people felt was, the same way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not because it was bad. I, I enjoyed what they were doing. The core concept of it was very cool. Um, it, it certainly seemed like a project where you could explore things like gender identity. But it like fluidity, a lot of their you know, stuff it's hard to figure out who the audience is supposed to be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're making shit for themselves. Yeah. And I, that's great. I mean, the Hollywood system is one where artistic enterprise is only allowed to go on so long as it is profitable. Yeah. Um, or so long as it can be projected to be profitable. Right. And, and you're only going to be given that leash, you know, the length on that leash, if you prove again, again, and again, that you can be trusted to. And the Wachowskis have not proven again and again and again that they can be trusted to, no. but they, they relentlessly insist on doing what they want. And, and that I think is, is a sign of just how groundbreaking they were and are, but it is also meant that they've been able to make these huge big budget films that don't necessarily hit all of those marketing bullet points. And, and it's, as a result, they haven't really had a truly successful film in quite some time. And and I don't think that's bad. I don't mark a filmmaker's quality based on how much money they make at the box office. That's not it at all. But Hollywood does. Yeah. And Hollywood will rein in their projects. I think ultimately this film is going to do just fine um, because the metrics have changed. Right. Obviously, it's box office was bad. Um, but the audience for a Matrix sequel at this point is... It's like people our age Mm -hmm. who remember the originals and people our age who remember the originals have like kids and, and responsibilities and things they have to get done. I have to work. And going to the theater. not going to the movies. (laughs) Going to the theater during a pandemic with a bunch of other losers who are probably just going to ruin the experience for you. Why? When I can watch it on HBO Max on my 65-inch TV with Mm -hmm. a pretty decent sound system at home on my couch, that's what I'm going to do. And I think Warner Brothers knows that because let's what I'm the number I'm waiting for is for Warner Brothers to say, here's how many subscribers to HBO Max we acquired this year. Yeah, because that's the gauge of success for The Matrix and many of the films that have come out. Dune is not getting a sequel because it made $200 million at the box office internationally. (laughs) It's getting a sequel because it did bomb diggity numbers on HBO max. And that's what they care about. So 
I, I think it will be fine. I don't think this is going to go down in history as a, as, as a failure in, in the traditional sense. Um, it's going to be another sort of middling, you know, film from the Wachowskis in terms of its performance, I'm sure. But Warner Brothers, I have no doubt, is perfectly fine with it. Um, so the, you know, the, the basic thrust of the story is that, well, let's talk a little bit about the, the history of it because, and again, this is all circumspect. This is all studio chatter. That's, that's sort of leaked out. The basic idea of how this went down is that every year since the release of matrix revolutions, Warner brothers goes to the Wachowskis and says, do you guys want to make a sequel? And of course, because they're artists, they told their story, they're kind of finished with it. For 15-ish years, they said no. Then, uh, Zach Penn, and, and supposedly this script, or this, tr- I, I imagine it's more of a treatment than a full-on script, but a spec treatment, or at least an elongated treatment, probably with scenes, started circulating, right? He went into Warner Brothers and said, I have an idea for The Matrix. And this is the guy he wrote, you know, or has been, he participated in the original X-Men trilogy. He specifically, he's been around for a long time, but he's a big comic book guy. He's a big video game guy, right? A lot of the video ad- video game adaptations that have kind of gotten close to meet reaching production. Zach Penn was involved at some point, but then he made ready player one, which was a minor, minor hit for Spielberg seen as a kind of return to form for big Spielberg filmmaking. And that was a, it was okay. Right. The source material was crap, but the, yeah. the film itself was okay. We don't talk about it. <laughs> he he wrote that um and supposedly he got a meeting at warner brothers and said i have a pitch for the matrix and this is right around the time that we started hearing that michael b jordan had also had a meeting at warner brothers and and they kind of laid out their 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 ip for him and said what do you want to do because he's hot 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 right michael b jordan was so big it's like we we want to do something with you what do you want to do and he said i want to do the matrix so now for any studio executive, you've got two pieces of the puzzle, right? We got a, we got a potential script idea that seems okay, a treatment that we're okay with. We've now got a star, a bankable star that we can bring in. Even if Keanu and Carrie Ann and Lawrence Fishburne don't want to be involved, we've got Michael B. Jordan and that could be enough, right? So you mean you, you think about how studio executives, the sort of cold calculations that they run for how can we get a Matrix sequel together? You start seeing things start to form. So the, the current thinking is that 2017, 2018-ish, you know, the Wachowskis have just finished Jupiter Ascending. They're looking for other projects. Um, both of them are, are have experienced some, uh, well, I guess that comes a little later, but they're, you know, they're in the middle of stuff, right? They've got things developing. Lily's kind of gone off. She's working on that Showtime show. That's actually really funny. It's very good. Um, and, and Lana's kind of looking for projects. They come to them during their annual check-in for Warner Brothers Matrix sequels and they say okay are you guys interested they say no they say well we have a script we have a star can we make this without you and that's a very different conversation than Mm -hmm. do you guys want to do another Matrix it's a it's an implied threat of we'll do this without you if you say no and for anybody that's created a thing as big and as culturally impactful as the matrix, are you going to let it go? Are you just going to say, yeah, just take that world, take those characters and just do whatever you want. Movie studio. Of course not. So apparently in this meeting, Lana Wachowski says, yes, I'll come back. Lily again declines. She always want anything to do with the matrix anymore. She's passed it. 
at least at this stage. And so Lana, you know, takes up the development. The Zach Penn script, theoretically, the Zach Penn script just gets thrown out, as you would expect. And and the Michael B. Jordan thing gets dropped because Lana wants to work with her original cast, who had all said that they wouldn't come back for a Matrix sequel unless the Wachowskis were involved. Production begins. She's not really, she's working on the script. And then um, the Wachowskis' parents both die very quickly in, in relation to each other. And according to some interviews that Wachowski has given Lana specifically, she was crushed, right? Unable to process the grief of losing, you know, these two very important individuals in their lives. And she found solace in the story of the matrix, the idea that she could resurrect Neo and Trinity and bring those characters back characters that she loves characters that she gave an end to, but yet at the same time that there was hope there, there was life that was implied and so she uses this as a kind of therapy to to both deal with the situation she finds herself in, basically being forced by a major movie studio to take up the mantle of a franchise you've left behind or else, um, and then also deal with this sort of impossible grief and loss. And so that's the current, you know, sort of here's how this even happened kind of thing. And And I think we can see a lot of those pieces in this film. Um, there's a lot of support, a lot of textual support in the film for these real world events, yes. <laughs> a couple of specific conversations between, uh, Neo or, or Thomas Anderson, who is, is basically called into an office by his business partner who says, Hey man, Warner brothers specifically calling them out has told <laughs> us that they're going to make one of these without us. So either we make it or they break all our contracts and break all of our agreements and they just go do it on their own. And the bewilderment on Keanu's face, just the what <laughs> is so perfect. Um, it's it, it's really, really well done. So so this is another film. I mean, we've seen a bunch of these now, right? The the legacy sequels, right? The, the legacy sequels slash reboot slash prequel slash preboot, you know, whatever Soft you want to call reboot. them, right? Um, another film that I hope to talk about with Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which mm. is really where these started, right? Because Wes Craven's New Nightmare was his attempt to reclaim and recontextualize the nightmare on elm street franchise which at that point had been run too into big the for fucking ground <laughs> just like um, too much <laughs> yeah and and it's it's really the first meta horror film right yeah. and you know it's and it started this whole idea that you could comment on the reboot that you're making from the outside you could look in on it and you could create a film that is both what you're actually trying to do it is a horror film Right. It is one of those. But at the same time, it's commenting on them. It really laid the groundwork for what he would do literally the year after in screen. Yeah. Right. Like he basically took the meta narrative sort of final new nightmare Freddy film. And then he ran all of those ideas right through Kevin Williamson's script for Scream and did the entire and did it for the entire slasher genre and basically brought that genre back from the dead which in the mid nineties, I think everybody would be comfortable in saying it was dead. Yeah. Um, that horse had been beaten to death. Um, and, and the, you know, so we, there's a lot of conversation to be had there, but really this is of all of the ones we've gotten recently, right? So star Wars, the force awakens, um, which is probably the most successful of these attempts because it's star Wars. I mean, there's, there's a ton. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but anyway, this one is, I think is the most meta of them. And I think it benefits the most from that commentary yeah. of all of them. I think it's just so pitch perfect in its approach 
and in its its way to both actively attempt to be a matrix sequel but then also and this this term has also become you know sort of wildfire in any fan community to subvert your expectations yeah which i i hate now that subverting an audience's expectations is seen as a bad thing and it and in so many of these fandoms it is right like how dare you subvert my expectations about luke skywalker ryan johnson oh my god it's like yeah well you know it was a choice which, it's fine you know, that you don't I, like it I, and honestly i've read some of the the anti ryan johnson star wars people on twitter wow i just I have well, never hated any movie as much as they hate that movie. It's um, vitriolic. Intense. And, and, you know, I get it. I, I think it's kind of a beautiful end. I understand if you don't like where he took that character. Again, my question movie. is, my question is, is what was he supposed to do with a movie that told you that Luke Skywalker, the greatest hero of the rebellion, just fucking disappeared, just fucked right off to who knows where and has been gone and nobody can find him and he doesn't seem interested in helping them with this new problem. How are you supposed to justify that? Right? Has he just been sitting on this island studying force texts for 15 years to try and grow powerful enough to stop this tiny little empire variation? <laughs> like, no, I mean, he could do that with his eyes closed. So what happened? And then you, you give a decent screenwriter those kinds of character setups and he's going to try and write something that feels believable yeah. and actual instead of, oh, I've been... My X-Wing broke and I couldn't get off the island. So I've been here for 15 years. I've been in a forced prison. (laughs) You know, Yoda was here too, I guess. I don't know. Like, it's it's one of those things, man. Like, how do you justify that? He hadn't reached out through the force to Leia, which we established in the previous trilogy that he could do he at lost will. All right? of his midi chlorians. All of his midi chlorians <laughs> got drained in his final battle me. with the Emperor. Yes, that's the secret. That's oh that's shit! How I you could write it. this stuff. Call me Disney. Oh god, man, we can do it. I'll write me a Star Wars. I mean, War. again, I don't want to go down the Star Wars hole. Yeah. We could definitely do that. But it's one of those ideas that the fandoms now. And I use fandoms as a very loose term. They're really good fandoms too, of course. But a many there, there's there is a splinter faction in nearly every fandom that will hate the film, not because the film itself is bad or or poorly produced or badly written. They will hate it because it didn't do what they wanted it to. Yeah. And this has always persisted. And it's frankly, a, a lot of the consumerist approach to movie making. Yeah. To this is a theater. transaction. Yeah. Right. I paid my ticket. You give me what I want. Yeah. And, and that's not what film. I, I mean, I, I guess I can say that that's not what film is. Not for me. Film is, is not transactional where I should feel like I get what I want. Now there are those films out there that are able to ride that line of giving you surprise and shock but also all the things you expect i think marvel the reason why they've been so successful is that their production team has found a way that most of the films not all of them there are some stinkers in there right like if you're one of those people that says the mcu is a perfect thing you're kind of ignoring you must a have lot missed of those stuff. other thor movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah have you seen thor 2 um but more often than not they're able to hit that balance of giving the fans what they want but yet also you know giving them surprise and not just being predictable. And, and that's, that's a skill. That's a challenge, right? But they've got that, that engine humming along and they're able to do that. Now mm. Eternals <laughs> it's more problematic. Um, but the, the idea here is that 
the fact that a fandom or, or people within a fandom will only ever be satisfied when they're given what they want is kind of untenable. Cause how can a filmmaker know that, right? How can a filmmaker know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every person will be satisfied? And why story? should a filmmaker know that? No, I mean, it's, it, it's the George Lucas problem, right? It's the prequel problem. This is yeah. where all this started, you know, is, or at least became amplified enough that it creeped into our modern consciousness. And I still won't say sequels, that I like you know, the prequels, the Star Wars prequels. They're terrible movies, but that doesn't, that still doesn't mean anything because in the end he was allowed to make any movie he wanted. Right. And They're his movies. should have accepted that. Yeah. And if you don't like it, that's fine. But here it is. This doesn't is ruin the, the other three. No, it doesn't. And and that's true of all of these things, right? The Matrix Resurrections does not reverse engineer the original Matrix Absolutely films and make them not. worse. The first no, Matrix movie is still just as exciting and fun to watch. And yeah. it still, you know, tickles that place in my soul that, you know, I was freaking, I don't know, what, what was I, 12 when that came out? So it it was absolutely amazing, yeah. and it's still amazing. It still pushes that button for me, yeah. you know, regardless of the rest of the franchise. But what this one does, and I think does really well in subverting expectation, is that in a lot of ways it is Lana Wachowski saying, I'm going to give you a variation on the thing that you want. I'm going to give you what you want, but it's not going to be that yeah. what it was before. right? I'm going to give you fight scenes. They're not going to be designed or structured or shot in the way that we shot them before. One, not technically possible, given the time constraints, given their locations that they had to do, given the COVID-19 pandemic that they had to shoot through and around. Um, given, given the fact, the fact that Ewan that Wo Ping, unfortunately, is exactly. dead and can't come back to articulate those fight scenes again. And, I'm sure that could have somebody. And our hero is, is now, you know, 20 years older. Give the guy a break. Very much so. Don't. Referenced specifically in the film. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like they, they reference the age gap, the difference, the, the different place that all these characters are in. I've watched it, I guess, three times now. And the first time I was kind of like, okay, I like that. I thought that was good. Certainly had some issues, had some problems, um, you know, but I, I felt really satisfied by the story. Uh, watched it a second time because uh, I just, I wanted to go back and answer some questions for myself. Like, what about this? Or this conversation, I want to revisit that and, and wound up being more satisfied. Really, it was sort of the same arc that Matrix Reloaded took for me, right? Because the yeah. first time you watch Matrix Reloaded, you're listening to the conversation between Neo and the architect and you're like, wait, hold, what? Hold on. Wait, hold on. What? Say that again. And it just goes so quickly that, you know, I got it, but I really wanted to dig into the specifics, right? Especially all of the math involved with what is the one <laughs> and how does he affect the source code? Because it all was like legitimate, you know, programmer talk. But so I, I found that as I watched it again, the same thing happened. Like, oh, okay, I see specifically what you're saying here about the Matrix and how it's functioning and how the Matrix has changed, how this new version is operating now. I mean, it's supposed to you be know, this like, really harsh black and white view of what the Matrix is. And it's supposed to be in direct contrast with the humanity of the people in the film. Mm -hmm. you know? And it, it, it works really well, but boy, people hated it. <laughs> they just really they hated I mean, that. <laughs> You know, I watched it, uh, watched it just my wife and I first because it isn't it's R rated. You know, it's an R rated film. So I wanted to watch it before I watched it with my kids, uh, even though we've watched all the other Matrix sequels and kind of talked about some of the elements there. But I was like, you know, I want to just preview it, you know, kind of know what we're getting into in terms of the R rating. Um, and it came down to you know, it's violence, a little bit of language, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing that would prohibit me from allowing decently mature, you know, kids to, to watch it and enjoy it. 
And so then I watched it with my daughter. My son wasn't super interested. It was a little bit slow moving in the second act for him. The opening really grabbed him. Like he was like, dude, I want to watch this. It's cool. And I was like, yes, it is. He's a fan of and, punching in action. And it, oh, it sure. slows I mean, like down significantly. And, and, but there's an ebb and flow to that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so he watched the whole thing and enjoyed it. But he, you know, I could tell it was waning for him a little bit. But my daughter was super into it. And a lot of it came down to the costumes. Yeah. Um, and the visual Beautiful presentation. She's like, costumes. everybody dresses so cool in these movies. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> Boy, right? that was me in 1999 leaving the theater. Exactly. Like, I need a, a vinyl cat suit right now. Oh, that's right. I just, I There's need it. I'm so glad. With a lot of laces up I'm back. so glad our mother said no. Because I was going to buy one. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, no, oh, yeah. I need this. And a trench coat. Absolutely. Leather trench coat all the way. And she's like, honey, she was... I just, I just don't think, I just don't think that you'll wear that. I don't think you really will. <laughs> she was saying, I, I will not great. let you wear that. <laughs> Thank yeah. God. That was the nice way to say it. <laughs> um, but I think, I, I, she really responded well to Jessica Henwick's character. Yeah. Uh, books. Uh, she really cool. liked her. Who I, I think of the new crop of characters that we got, um, I, I think she definitely was the most interesting and the most that felt akin to discovering those characters in the original Matrix trilogy and finding yeah. out about them. She felt the most sort of a piece with she, that experience. To me, it was kind of like them getting to redo Switch's character and not having her die immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, not bring like back this. this really cool character like that had such great style and don't kill her. <laughs> Yeah, and keep her alive this time, you know, because <laughs> this time the world isn't trying to kill that part of you, Lana Wachowski. Yeah. We we can embrace it, and it's okay. Um, I, I did want to note, uh, you know, that's uh, David Mitchell, uh, the writer of Cloud Atlas, yes. which is a life-changing book. Uh, yeah. It's a book that everyone should read. It is a masterpiece, a modern masterpiece, in my opinion. And the, and the Wachowski's adaptation of it is also, in its own way, beautiful and and with a I'm not few say quiet, struggling but moments but yeah bad it's, it's choices a, i would not want to undertake the adaptation of cloud atlas no. right that's one of those books that you read and go no they how, could never how do you um, even explain it and and the the solutions and, and everything that they found with tom tyker to or, or to, uh, tom, tom tyker i guess tickfer there we go um to to do it i think was probably the best it's probably the best version that you could get. Yeah. Um, especially given the budget that they had, but it's, it's a glorious film and I, I do love that one too. Um, but they brought David Mitchell in to help uh, write the script. And I think you can feel that with, you know, we've talked a lot about things like, you know, basic screenwriting techniques like setup and payoff. But the thing that I think Mitchell brings to this is thematic elements, right? Like this as far as every Matrix film has been about ideas, which is lampooned relentlessly in this movie. <laughs> so the Matrix is about ideas. It's about post-capitalism. It's about transhumanism. Like, it just, you know, it's it's the standard. We're going to throw all these buzzwords to try and figure out what the themes of this movie are. But the, yeah. this movie is well aware of its thematic ideas and what it's trying to put out. To the point that I think that it was the focus of this film. I think this film is this matrix film is much more interested in the expression of specific ideas than it is in fight scenes. Right. And, and I, I think that that's one of the main disconnects for a lot of the, the sort of fan base is that the first movie was a great balance of ideas and fight scenes, 
really that you can almost divide the film 50 50 into here are our ideas here are our fight scenes <laughs> um and then the balance gets out of whack in the sequels where they become much more about ideas with fight scenes but the fight scenes are now almost completely disconnected from the ideas they're almost two different movies and then revolutions kind of tries to bring it together at the end but doesn't really hit all the bases and it and it spends way too much time in the quote unquote real world where things just aren't very interesting. Um, this one I think gets closer back to that balance of ideas versus fight scenes, but it's still just very much an idea movie and it wants to express its, its themes and ideas and concepts clearly. And then is willing to kind of forgo everything else. And that's why I think a lot of people say the action in this one feels more like an afterthought, um, which it's not, but it's it, the action, much like the Matrix sequels, rarely has stakes. All right, there's really right. a reason for people to be fighting right now. They're just fighting because that's kind of a thing the Matrix does, and that even gets referenced a little bit. You know, when uh, a character from the sequels pops up and is just sort of screaming random French nonsense at <laughs> everybody mm. while they're fighting. Um, ah, <laughs> he. Uh, you know, you kind of get the idea that even the even Lana Wachowski is like, we don't really need this. This yeah. is here because it's expected, um, and and that's okay, right? The Matrix has been a film uh, has been a film franchise that has always struggled with that balance uh, since the original, really. And that's because in the original, all of the fight scenes are tied to Thomas Anderson's growth into the one, and they've never really needed to do that again, right? And that's why, like at the end of the Burley Brawl, he just flies away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could have done this at the beginning, but I'm not. So, um, you know, it's 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 one of those things. But ultimately, I think, you know, I come down that I think this is in 10 years when all of the YouTubers are either dead or they've their green screens have fallen down in their closets. Um, and people just watch this movie and discover it. I think it will be seen as as a a pseudo masterpiece. Like it's, it's so intricately written and well thought out as a reinvention of what the matrix is that I think if you watch it with that in mind and are willing to go where Wachowski goes, I, I think it's really satisfying and really good. I agree. Um, but until we get past this initial, just vitriolic hate that is being levied against it because it didn't make, a bunch of frat bros want to put on their leather trench coats and weird sunglasses again. I, I think it's just going to be overshadowed by some of that, that online hate much like many of these prequel boot sequel things yeah. have been over the last decade. Like they've all gotten this treatment from a particular, very loud, you know, the, these are the guys that were posting on the ain't it cool message boards in 2005. Like these mm -hmm. are the guys that are mad. And no one should care about those guys, right? Like <laughs> their opinions only matter to them. Don't worry about them, right? There's a reason why that website collapsed because Harry Knowles is a piece of shit. It <laughs> yep. always was. And he gave a platform and a voice to a bunch of other people that didn't deserve it and don't need it. And that's okay. Everybody's on the internet. Everybody gets to have their opinions, Movie but I, poop shoot. I think it's important to have a sort of larger outlook. And I think in that larger outlook, in that context, if you are one of those people 
like, okay, so when I saw the Re- revolutions, there was like three other people in the theater. The guy down in front was so pissed that that Neo died. Sorry, spoiler for Matrix Revolutions 20 years <laughs> later. I haven't seen it. He was so pissed that Neo died that he like threw his popcorn on the ground. He was like, <laughs> what? Right. So if if you're that guy, this movie redeems that for you, right? It brings them back and it leaves them in a better place than the original trilogy did. Um, I don't know if I need another Matrix film. I don't think I want another Matrix film. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen because I have a feeling now that Warner Brothers has been emboldened by backing the Wachowskis into a corner and making them make another one. But I, I hope I, I hope what happens with that know. is that Lana Wachowski says, sure, I'll make 10 more Matrix movies, but you have to fund all my other shit as well. It's exactly right. Like <laughs> Jupiter ascending to bitches. It's on. <laughs> We're going to make all the weird <laughs> ideas I have. Um, it, and yeah, we'll, we'll and, certainly see how that goes. But I, I think it's it is you can feel her love for these characters in this mm-hmm. universe and just wanting to see them wind up happy. Yeah. Right. And like that was the end goal here and it achieves that. And it was, um, it was very nice. Even the, the very, you know, cheesy ending that, I mean, it was admittedly cheesy, but it was so satisfying. Like I really yeah. enjoyed that. I was like, why not have some cheese? Um, yeah. And you know, I think and I, that that's I, part of, I enjoyed seeing the two characters again, you know, Neo and Trinity. Mm-hmm. I that who wouldn't want that? And I don't I, I guess I didn't really care what they did in the movie. I just wanted to see those characters again. And you know, I'm I'm thrilled that the film simply acknowledges that that is most of what the appeal of these movies is yeah. and just runs with it. Like this is what you're here for, yeah. right? Like I know what you're here for, so I'm going to give you that. But Please bear with me as I don't give you every single thing on your I must have this in a Matrix movie checklist. Exactly. She's giving them all to you, but just not necessarily in the way that it was in the past because we're not in the past. And this is a film that feels very aware of the fact that time and technology and society have moved on. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the new architect of this Matrix, and I don't think this is a spoiler because it's in the trailers, is Neil Patrick Harris's character. And, and the whole point is that this new version of the matrix operates under very different conditions. And the condition is one between desire and fear, right? Like this matrix operates on the fact that people want the things that they want, but are so afraid of losing the things that they have, that they become stuck. Mm -hmm. And in that place of being stuck, you produce a lot of energy, Mm -hmm. right? And where might that energy be going in our modern society, mm-hmm. but into social media, mm-hmm. just a huge echo chamber of people who are angry about things, who are so afraid to lose the things that they already have. They just are in a constant state of panic and rage. I will share and my thoughts in the form of, of a meme. <laughs> That's right. And it's, it's so brilliant and subtle. Well, it's not even subtle. Like it's it's handled very well, but it's the film is very obvious. Yeah, it's, about it's the pretty loud it's about what it wants on. to tell you, and that's okay. That's good. And because the Matrix, the original Matrix was loud, right? Like I, the original Matrix. That's why it was refreshing. It was not subtle. All of these other subtle art house action movies that you yeah. know 
were drowning everything. I mean, you had, I don't know, like, this was a few years before, but I'm thinking of, like, the usual suspects, which like movies sure. like that, where they they feel yeah, I mean, that, too artsy-fartsy for their own good. Yeah. Um, and I'm saying that as someone who loves those movies, but that's well, sure. why The Matrix felt so good, is that it was very indulgent, and this movie is equally as indulgent. Definitely, and it, it was produced by a society... I mean, let's think back to 1999, man, right? We're talking a couple years pre-2001. 1999, and if you look at 99's movies, which many people have, their entire podcast devoted to the films of 1999. This is the year of The Matrix. It's the year of Fight Club, right? The Mummy. It's the year of, uh, <laughs> it's, it's right around the time American Beauty comes out. <laughs> Right, like if you look at the movies that were getting trashed, and yes, it is also the time of the month. Uh, it <laughs> is the, the ascent of Brendan moments. Fraser, um, which I'm so glad he's doing well. Oh, lovely. Uh, which I, this I will throw this out again. Watch Doom Patrol, people. Yeah. Uh, just as a blatant, if you have any kind of love for actual comic books, not like the sanitized, more straightforward, very palpable and very easy to to sort of grab MCU stuff or what most of that is. Even the DC stuff, if you like actual weird comic books, like what comic books actually are, Doom Patrol is marvelous. Uh, there is a magic donkey in the first season that the characters have to go inside because there is a universe trapped inside of its stomach. That's comic books, people. That's how comic <laughs> books work, right? And and it's so good, and I love it so much. And Brendan Fraser is a huge part of that because he plays uh, Robot Man. And or at least does the voice of Robot Man, and then whenever he shows up as his human self from the past, he's Brendan Fraser. But anyway, such a great actor. Um, but 1999 was a time period where basically people kept asking, and the 90s in general was this this question of is this all there is, right? Because we kind of had, I mean, at least from a societal standpoint, even though things were terrible and they've always been terrible, um, people felt like things were okay. We'd come out of Reagan, everybody had money, taxes weren't too bad you know things were were okay so you found a lot of of art and media asking the question of like so is this all we're gonna do now is this it right like we're just gonna like keep doing this until we're dead like i'm just gonna go to work and i'm gonna make a decent wage and then i'm gonna like spend all, all of that on like cars and and shit it's like is that is this it and so that's why you have fight club being like no let's blow all that up nobody cares about that stuff that's not living and then you've got the matrix that comes in and says, Oh, that's all a lie. That's just artifice, right? <laughs> like the real world is underneath and it's much grittier. And, and we've got all these problems down there we need to deal with. But you know, if you just live it in the gloss the of 1999, right. <laughs> you know, that, that when, when uh, Morpheus is saying like the pinnacle of society, the world of 1999, <laughs> <or> whatever <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's, that was the idea. That was the, the, the concept behind it. And, that doesn't exist anymore. Nobody no. feels that way. And it never really did. Um, I mean, that's the irony no, is that it, the Matrix had it right. Right. <laughs> yes. The Matrix was absolutely correct. So was Fight Club as much as, you know, that film is problematic for lots of other reasons. As long as you don't um, identify with uh, Brad Pitt. That's the only thing. You're not supposed to like Brad Pitt, people. Don't. bad. Brad Pitt is the bad guy. He's the guy bad guy. Fight Club. <laughs> He's very attractive, but bad guys often are. Um yeah, it's the same, you know, our modern version of that is the you know, Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. It's like Rick Rick Sanchez is not a hero. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the reason why people didn't like the last season of Rick and Morty is because they keep trying to make him a more legitimate hero. 
um, because they realize that people are not getting it. Yeah. We're not picking up on the quote unquote subtext Ugh. that he's not a good person. Uh, even though Morty says in basically every episode, Rick, you're not a good person. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. So the, the matrix of erections is a, a sort of brilliant ball of ideas that is imperfect. Um, there are dodgy special effects all over the place that a $190 million movie should not have. Um, the, the casting is, is generally pretty good. I can see why people have issues with, you know, Patrick Harris and Jonathan Groff and the roles that they're in, but I think they're fine. Um, Keanu and, Reeves and, and Carrie Ann Moss look amazing. Like that, and that's why you're coming beautiful. to this man. I mean, let's be real here. Holy you shit! Know? Like, Carrie Ann Moss is so beautiful. My God, she looks she's... really good in this. Wow, she looks really good. She just yeah. looks they... as perfect as she did in 1999. Without feeling like they had to make her look like she did in 1999. Yes, she looks, and that's one of the things that I like about sort of where Keanu is, which, you know, Keanu is the unchangeable one. Like he just <laughs> looks the same. Although I think the past couple of years, he's, you know, you can start to see that he's in his fifties now, right? Yeah. It's like, it's starting to hit him, but not in a, he finally way. looks like he's in his thirties. <laughs> right. Like now he looks like 35. <laughs> God damn it. Um, but, but no, but they, they let her be her age, yeah. right? Like Wachowski is not trying to make her look like a, a late, you know, like she's in her late twenties. She looks like a mature, beautiful woman. And it was so refreshing to not have a Hollywood studio executive standing over the top being like, I can kind of see the crow's feet. Can you guys get rid of those? Yeah. And then the I'm answer sorry, being, her skin no. can't have texture. Like that's not okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean like we have we have people for that, right? Do you want to do that? And then they're like, no. Miss Wachowski, oh, can I show you a Snapchat filter I used yesterday? I really wonder if we can apply that to this scene. Like, I that's mean, what it, I expect. puts these big eyelashes of. around your eyes makes it look beautiful. <laughs> it's just This perfect. one gives you a hat. <laughs> <laughs> Bunny ears, even. <laughs> so, um, it's, it, it was, I, I don't know, very high on the Matrix. I, I And the more yeah. I watch it, the more I like it. Uh, yeah. I know a lot of, you know, the meme now is is Keanu just holding his hands up to block bullets <laughs> instead of you know the old school fighting but again they didn't have time like that's the other piece of this that i want to i mean they trained for almost a like a year before the original yeah. matrix to get those fight choreography scenes down and this movie did not do that there were right? nobody had that time and difficulties i mean yeah it was not easy to to create those fight scenes back then and I can only imagine that given the you know time constraints and, and so many other restrictions, it just was impossible. And it's okay. The movie was still fine and fun and action-packed yeah. without, you know, the really cool fighting. Maybe we don't need that. Right. And I, I mean, if anything, The Matrix is just one of those film franchises that it has presented us with so many. I mean, the highway chase in Reloaded is one of the most impressive yeah action sequences in the history of cinema like in the history of all movies ever it is one of the most logistically challenging incredibly shot incredibly well thought out action sequences in the in in the world yeah well i mean when i taught a film class that that specific scene was in our textbook first under the special effects chapter <laughs> Yeah, because it's it's <laughs> such an achievement on every level of production. Yeah. And so no Matrix sequel 
is going to be able to live up to one of the greatest. And we just ever. don't make like, movies no like that what, anymore. We don't blow. Even up though I think some of the chase scenes at the end of this are actually really good, like yeah. they're very cool. But all right, so Matrix Resurrections, big thumbs up from us. I guess we didn't really get too much into spoilers, so I guess I guess we're pretty good there. It's really just kind of general conversation, but. Um, yes, Matrix Resurrection, seek it out. I will be purchasing it on 4K the moment that I am able because streaming 4K looks very good, but it is also shit compared <laughs> to disc-based 4K in my experience. Um, I am I am so far down the 4K rabbit hole at this point. It is sad. Um, I watched Pacific Rim in 4K the other day. Um, got the disc for Christmas. And that's not even like a great 4K disc. Like it's it's like a fairly like just decent quality one. But my God. Oh, oh, him, oh, him goodness. <laughs> Was that a treat um, to see Gypsy Danger rendered in that kind of spectacular fashion was glorious. Uh, and the lighting, the HD, I mean, I, my TV doesn't do Dolby Vision because I, I cheaped out and I bought one at the cheapest price I possibly could. Um, but it does HDR10, which, you know, is a nice fallback option for that disc. And there were colors that it brought out that I've, I mean, and I've watched the original Blu-ray, which is a fine Blu-ray of, of Pacific Rim. I'm, I'm going to say 12 times, 13 times easily. And, and there were colors and stuff in some of the fights that I just never seen before. It looked so, so good. Uh, so yeah, um, Matrix, big old thumbs up, like it. Yep. Um, all right, so another one, and this is one that I'm so glad we get to talk about, uh, because it was such a surprise for me, and I loved it so so much. Uh, I took my kids to see it in the theater um, back. Uh, I guess it would have been November-ish, October maybe. Um, we we made a special trip. You know, we masked up. We took our extra doses of vitamin C or whatever shit. And, and we went and Oh, Oh my goodness. Uh, free, uh, free guy. Yeah. With, uh, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, so, so tell me about free guy. I only just saw this movie. Um, I, I don't go see things when they come out. Like I'm really impressed with myself that I watched the matrix, uh, because usually I'm, I'm coming in months later on things. Um, but Free Guy is another movie that is trying to uh, bring us into the world of video games. Um, there have been a lot that have courtesy tried to of do Zach this. Penn, because courtesy Zach Penn, yeah. mentioned that that connection. Um, another another of his. Um, this is a movie told from the perspective of a non-player character in a video game, and. I kind of love that because I am one of those people who who thinks about the NPCs like I get very worked up about hurting them. I'm like I'm one mm -hmm. of the few people who does not like to hurt NPCs in a game. Um, like I'll I will quit and reload a save if I accidentally kill someone because I just don't like that. And uh, this movie is is hugely triggering for people like me because <laughs> um, this is all about why maybe we shouldn't do that. Um yeah, the the artificial intelligence of the NPC. And it has Ryan Reynolds in it being his likable self because he's just so damn likable. He has just found his his niche and he is comfortable with it and he is happy with the roles that he gets. And he just is so passionate 
about the projects that he chooses. He's at the point in his life and career where he's not chasing that Hollywood status anymore. And it seems like he has a ton of power in terms of the projects he picks and, and what he chooses to produce and be involved with. And as a result, I don't think the man can make a bad movie anymore because he's setting himself up for success by choosing projects that he knows he will knock out of the park. And free guy is absolutely one of those. This is not so the this, type of movie that I'm drawn to most of the time. Um, <clears throat> no. Mm-mm. And I watched it on a whim with my, my partner and uh, I I was shocked that it was so good. It was, it's one of those movies that you could look at the poster and say, this is probably stupid. Um, but no, surprisingly heartwarming and surprisingly funny and surprisingly accurate. Yes. That was the thing that thrilled me the most is, you know, we're both video game folk. Um, yep. We've been playing video games our basically entire lives. So we understand how I, uh, they work and the systems. I work yeah, you're, on video you work games. in the industry. <laughs> so like it, and, and most video game movies, even ones like ready player one, right? Which, Which was sucks. a decent one. Get <laughs> oh, <sorry>. stuff about <laughs> movies wrong. Uh, it gets stuff about video games wrong. Uh, how they operate, the way in which they function, how people interact with the systems. Like most it's just, of the time, they end up like that episode of the X Files where they were inside the first person shooter. It was called First Person Shooter. Please yeah. go watch it. And it's <laughs> it's terrible. Mm, it's just not good. <laughs> you know, it's 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 somebody who doesn't know video games attempting mm-hmm. to write a story that seems to fit inside that box, but this one. Apart from a few, a few things, there are a couple of things that are definitely like, mm, no, mostly about how like you control your character in the world and what you're doing and all that stuff. But right. A lot, again, a a certain lot of point, it is, you have to, is narrative like stretching that they just have to do to make the movie make sense. And that I understand. Right. Yeah, it is in some ways it's this is not a direct adaptation of a particular video game or its story, but it is in many ways an adaptation of particular types of games and yes. how those are played. And in in adapting anything, you have to make choices about how you're going to sort of communicate ideas to the audience. And the ones that I think this film makes are actually very smart choices, but they do have to kind of bend the reality of how a video game works to make it to make it go. And that's okay. Um, So the basic setup for Free Guy, if you haven't seen it yet, although it seems like this movie has done quite well, um, is that we are following the in-game exploits of a non-player character who seems to sort of come to life in the world played by Ryan Reynolds. And he is triggered by an interaction with a player character um, that then sort of begins to change how he approaches his day to day routine. What in video game parlance you would call an NPC loop, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because most, even all the way back, really the game being referenced here is Grand Theft Auto. That's the one that's never mentioned, but it is absolutely the game that we are, we are sort of immersed in. And even back in the original Grand Theft Auto, you know, the, the top down one that came out in the nineties before, you know, they exploded with Grand Theft Auto three, they basically figured out that you could convince players that a world was alive. If you, if it seemed like the non-player characters who in the original Grand Theft Auto were just a top down little sprite, it was basically a, an oval with another with a circle on its top that it would just kind of move around was that if they had if they looked like they were going somewhere or doing something you bought it Mm -hmm. as this is real 
And so they programmed in these little loops that these characters would run. Well, this guy's going to the coffee shop. And so he's going to loop back and forth and he's just endlessly going to the coffee shop. This car is going to endlessly be going to the train station and back and forth and back and forth. And that's how they built out a world in the absence of real artificial intelligence, a world that still felt alive. Um, now, the, the byproduct of that is that most video games, even the big ones like Grand Theft Auto V and, and all of its variations, they still basically do the same thing, right? They've, they've complicated it more. They've added more stops to the routine, but you can follow an NPC in one of those games for hours and just sort of watch it go through its day. Mm -hmm. um, and so this film is built on the idea, what if one of those NPCs came to life, for lack of a better term, and then began doing what it wanted in the world instead of following its loop? And that's what Ryan Reynolds is. He's an NPC who has come to life. Now, the reason why that's happened, the the sort of history of what made that possible within this game is sort of the mystery that gets kind of loosely unspooled as the story goes on. But it gives it a real emotional heft at the end as everything kind of comes into place. So he's doing that. And then we have these people in the quote unquote real world who are um, the, the two main ones are Joe Keery, who, my God, that man's hair is just a, a what my God, I, I, it's so difficult to say. I mean, he's, he's Nathan Fillion esque in the quality of his hair acting. His hair <laughs> acting is always on point and, and looks good. But so Joe Keery from stranger things, um, who is, is wonderful. Yeah. He and um, Jodie Comer from killing Eve and star Trek rise of Skywalker. <laughs> or Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Oh my god, I've pissed off. I just pissed off so many people. Oh my god. Um this Twitter, is a spot everyone. quote. Um but uh, Joe Keery and Jody Comer are two um game programmers who achieved a certain amount of popularity for a game uh what do they call it like It was a concept. It was this little award-winning concept yeah, called like an uh, indie game, Life you know? itself. Um something, yeah. It was supposed to be like, you know, life simulation. Yeah, and so it was just basically you would go down into this world and you would watch these NPCs just evolve, right, and learn. And they had actually written like an artificial intelligence engine to power that. And then they got bought by a much larger game studio and then their their code, at least according to Jodie Comer's character, um, was absorbed into this free city game, um, which is the, the sort of GTA knockoff. And... Um, she now is on a quest to try and uncover their code inside the game to prove that it was stolen from them. And, and so that's kind of the dual stories going on here, but there's a ton of gags, so many good visual gags. Um, we've got uh, Lil Ray Howery who plays guys, best friend, buddy. So it's literally buddy and guy, <laughs> um, <laughs> which just opens up all of these South park. You know, hey buddy, don't call me a buddy guy, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, but they're, they're such good friends and, and they have their little loop and then that loop gets disrupted and then the world sort of follows suit. And it's such a clever script. It's so well executed. It's directed by Sean Levy, um, who low key is probably one of my favorite like workman directors. Um, he's done a bunch of stuff that, you know, is whatever, you know, like one of his early, you know, movies was big fat liar mm -hmm. with. Malcolm in the middle, but he's also done 
uh, Real Steel, which is low-key one of my favorite movies ever. Absolutely love it. Um, just sort of unequivocally. It's giant robots punching each other, so it's always going to have that. But it's it's actually like a solid script. It's a decent family story. It's a really good one of those. Um, he's done most of the Night at the Museum movies, which are kind of like secret guilty pleasures of mine. They're not good, but they're very watchable. They're actually funny. There's, I mean, it's got Robin Williams and, and Stiller and uh, Rami Malek before he was a super popular. Um, I don't know. Just he's, he's low key made like really solid Hollywood stuff for a long time. And, and he's just a very dependable director. He, he always has that kind of the same consistency in his directing quality. It's not flashy. He's not like an, He's not like a David Fincher artist or anything like that, but he's a good, solid workman filmmaker. And this one falls into that category too. It's funny. It's shot well. It looks good. The special effects are consistently good throughout this. And I don't know. I I was really, really surprised and pleased by it. It, uh, you know, I'm always really wary of movies that, that say they're going to have anything to do with video games because so many of them mess it up. Even the ones that are just adaptations of video games can't seem to get it right. Um, It seems like films and games just fundamentally don't want to get along on some level. And uh, most films that are about video games, it feels like they're making fun of games in a way that sort of, devalues the hobby itself and and the product itself and i was really pleasantly surprised that this movie doesn't do that it doesn't devalue what games are it actually it uh it spends a great deal of time talking about how valuable games can be and how groundbreaking they can be um while also critiquing you know the consumerist nightmare that is the mmorpg with loot boxes and all of that garbage um so I really, I, I like that it, it felt more, and I hate using this word, but it felt more authentic in that regard, that this is this was actually made by someone who likes games and doesn't just want to rip on them for being different from movies. Yeah, no, the, there's a ton of respect for video games and how they operate and and sort of how they impact or how they affect, really, I should say, people's lives. And it's it's just really cleverly constructed. And it's built around a fantastic comedic performance by Ryan Reynolds, just top-notch stuff. Um, This also was one of the potential victims of the Disney-Fox merger. Mm -hmm. Um, It was produced by Fox, absorbed by Disney when the merger took place, and apparently it was Ryan Reynolds using the, I guess I'll call it bargaining chip of Deadpool, who demanded that Disney give it an actual release. And market it, not just dump it. Um, and he said that he would would because Reynolds is is closely tied to the Deadpool franchise through his own production company, mm-hmm. and apparently to get Deadpool or at least the Ryan Reynolds version of Deadpool into the MCU, which we know is happening at some point. I don't know how they're going to do that, but they're going to do it. Um, this was the this was the deal. Like you have to actually make this movie a thing because Reynolds really believed in it. And, and fortunately it worked. It made 330 ish million at the box office, which was more than it needed to, to be considered a success. So we're probably going to get another one. Um, but they also leaned heavy into it. 
There is a bunch of like Disney Marvel stuff that was peppered throughout this film now with a knowing wink and a glance to the to the camera of like, a yep, we can do this because now we're Disney. And that it also additionally feels like the very blatant cash grab items that you get in games games. that are are themed on things that don't belong in the game universe at all. Exactly. I have the free guy emote. I did the free guy (laughs) quest line in Fortnite. So that when I win in Fortnite, I can say, don't have a good day. Have a great day, (laughs) which is my emote when I win now. I just that's what I say to the people I've just beaten. And it's it's a it's great. But that's what video games are now. And this movie is very aware of that. And it's it's so good. Great performances, really good guest stars. Um, I think Channing Tatum should just be a perpetual guest cameo in film now. Like I like him as an actor. He's so good, but when he does these things, because he does appear in this in a couple of different scenes, when he does these, it is so obvious that he is having fun. Yeah. Just having the best time. It's kind of like, I mean, and not that I'm going to recommend the 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 uh, Seth Rogen apocalypse movie. I don't even remember what it was called now. Um, the end. It, I don't even remember. The one he did with Jay Baruchel and this all those guys. This is the end. This is the end. There you go. Um Cause he has a guest cameo in that as well, where he's, he's, he's a gimp for Danny McBride. Like Danny McBride comes out and there's a guy like in a gimp suit on a chain oh, on God. all fours, just next to Danny McBride for like an entire couple of scenes. And then at the end of the scene, Channing Tatum like takes the mask off and he's like, Hey, what's up guys? They're like, oh my God, is Channing Tatum that guy? And he was apparently so game. He It was cold. It was a night shoot. And they were like, Channing, we can just put some other dude in this suit <laughs> for these. And then you just really have to film the scene where you take the, ha- the hat off and we know it's you. And he's like, no, I got to do this, man. And so he did it on all fours in a gimp suit for days <laughs> to have those single payout. It's and and this is another one of those like just fun guest cameos where he plays like a high level player in the he game. He plays and, does all these and awesome not just things. any high level player. The player's name is Revengeman Buttons. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that. That's true. That's his name, Revengeman Buttons. Oh my god, it. that's so perfect. Oh. Jesus. <laughs> There's so many good gags and so much of the gags are backgrounded. This is another one of those movies that actually is, is trem- it's tremendously beneficial if you watch it a couple of times, because there's so much stuff happening in the background. Yeah. If you stop paying attention to the foreground action, which is interesting enough, you'll see that there are just players jumping in place mm-hmm. in the background, which is a thing that happens. Players who are bunny hopping mm-hmm. down the street because nobody just walks forward in a video <laughs> game. You jump the whole time. Um, cars changing colors as players change their settings, stuff exploding. Like it's again, it, it does a great job of visualizing the chaos of an actual open world, like shared multiplayer video game. Um, I've played GTA online literally once I loaded into the game. I was in like a black suit, you know, you, you design your character. I walked into a gun store cause it loads you next to a gun store. I walked into a gun store. I bought a little pistol or something. I walked outside and immediately somebody drove by in a car and shot me. Like immediately. <laughs> I had been in the game for less than two minutes. And a guy immediately drove by and murdered my character. And I was like, well, I just don't think this is a thing I'm going to spend a lot of time <laughs> at. 
Um, cause that's the way those games go. And this movie captures that. And it's so good. Um, this, and again, the, the story, the script is actually very good. It's, it's built super well and, and was just a, a really fun time to, uh, to engage with. Uh, and my kids loved it. My son is just all about it. He loves video game movies. He even loves, um, pixels, the yeah. Adam Sandler, like movie that was based on the YouTube viral thing that happened. Um, he loves that movie, dude, just because it, it's video games and he loves video games. And so seeing video games happen in life is he just gets no end of pleasure. From well, it, I mean, so. that I remember that excitement. I remember, you know, anything that had to do with video games in a movie always felt special, even if the movie was bad because it just didn't see it. it yeah, rare. absolutely. Um, I did want to say one more thing about Sean Levy um, that I think you will appreciate. He directed five episodes of the Animorphs series <laughs> back in the night. The one with Sean Ashmore that was only lasted yeah. for like two seasons anyway. He directed five episodes of that show. And uh, I just think that says a lot about who Sean Levy is as a director. <laughs> but, oh, no. So anyway, uh, Free Guy, another big thumbs up. Uh, it should be freely available. <laughs> har, har, har. Um, pretty much anywhere now. Um, apparently in non-US territories where Disney Plus is active, I believe it is streaming on Disney Plus. No. Uh, it's not it's not in the US. Um, but in in, you know, other countries that have gotten it, um, apparently it is there uh, for watching. So, um I hope we get another one. I, I could definitely watch another uh film set in that universe or, you know, one similar to it. I, I would the way that the characters arc out in this film, I kind of like where they're at. I don't necessarily want to see that get disrupted. Um, but I think you could do, I mean, video games are all about sequels and bigger, badder, better. We're going to, you know, you could do a lot and still not, you know, sort of take away from the story that the original film told. And, and hopefully that's what they've got in mind. But, um, all right. So that's, that's free guy. I guess do you have anything else to say about that one. Um, I really liked Taika Waititi in it. I thought he was fantastic as the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. He's he's really the villain. Over the top, he is but he the, was really funny. The, the over the top when he was trying like, to do the kip up and producer. he couldn't get it in the office. <laughs> 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 yeah, supposedly he improved a lot of that, which I think is obvious. Um, but Taika Waititi is one of the guys that when he improvs, you can be guaranteed that you're going to get some gold. And uh, yeah, he's so good. He plays Antoine A N T W A N, um, and he is the the head producer at this much larger video game studio that absorbs. Um, it was just it was tsunami, very tsunami. It was yeah. very video game critique without being too much. I I just really enjoyed it. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's it's easy to go too far with that. Right. You critique video game culture too much. And then, you know, the the people are going to pick up. They're being made fun of. And this yeah. doesn't do that. But it certainly pokes at a couple of things that have become sort of typical fare uh, in the video game industry. Right. The superstar producer, um, which was definitely a thing in the mid 2000s, probably when this started to develop. Right. There were you would have, you know, like your Jade Raymond's you know, from, yeah. from Ubisoft where it's like, this is like one of the stars of video games. And it's like, well, video games don't really work like that. Video yeah. games are super collaborative and it's like hundreds and hundreds of people contributing. And yeah, you've got that, those people at the top that are making those big creative decisions, but it's a team, you know, effort. It, it's a team effort. And, and, you know, 
it's it's one of those things that this movie kind of comments on, you know, pretty specifically too, and I think it works very well. I love how his office is just empty, like he's never there. <laughs> like they go into his office later, and it's just barren. It's just a desk, and there's like a monitor, but there's nothing in it because it's like he's such a superstar, he doesn't actually work, which I think is is hilarious. All right, and then I think the the last film we had talked about uh, on our our sort of like catch up for recent stuff is Don't Look Up. The yeah, direct to Netflix. Um, Adam McKay directed a massive and surprisingly varied cast, um, which he's been able to pull for a while now. He's did he did The Big Short, he did Vice, which of course got a lot of attention for Christian Bale's performance as Dick Cheney. Um, McKay has been trending this direction for a while. I mean, like, don't forget, this is the guy who directed, um, God, the name is escaping me now. Uh, the race car movie with Will Ferrell. Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights. There we go. Um, this is, this is the Talladega Nights guy who directed (laughs) Don't Look Up. Uh, the Anchorman guy. I'm fine with. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, not an insult, right? Those are good movies and and funny in in their own way. But he's he's always had this tendency to to take culture and good comedy does this. Take culture and then just you know satirize it, but also sort of present it accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, Talladega Nights, in terms of its racing, is probably the best racing movie we've gotten since. But it is also a very accurate depiction of NASCAR and people who watch NASCAR. It is also (laughs) very much a lampooning of that. I I feel like we've talked about this before, but I I worked with a guy uh, who was super into NASCAR and he was super excited about that movie coming out. And then after the movie came out, we we met and we met up at work and I was like, oh, what'd you think? Because I would see it, too. And he's like, it's good. But I think I was getting made fun of. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's you pretty much it. And, and this is still very much in that style, but he has gone much, much further away from the overt sort of, you know, Will Ferrell-esque comedy to now the more sort of subtle brand uh, combined together. Although this film, again, is not necessarily subtle. But this like, was hard to watch. Obvious. This was very difficult to watch. This is a in, tough watch. In addition to being very funny, it was really funny. Um, it, it was also a lot of cringing at, you know, specifically the United States and how we've handled the COVID pandemic, yes. which of course that's and, what and it's going after. It is now. I, I think the film became much more about the COVID pandemic as it developed. I think initially it was very much a, an analog for climate change. Yes. I think it was, it was very much sort of geared towards that. And that, that is still in the DNA of the project, but it has been completely recontextualized now in the light of how the United States has handled the COVID or, or failed to handle the COVID pandemic and more so the relationship of science to politics and the to relationship of media. science and politics to media and how media has shaped the understanding of science and politics and the and responsibility the that media things. has to to people to share information and how it frequently ignores its responsibility. Right. Um, how in, in the interests of being fair and balanced, um, they present two sides to some arguments that shouldn't have two sides. Mm-hmm. Right. The 
the the the fallacy of the two-sided argument. Not every argument has two sides. Factual information. Not is everything not, is an argument. That's it's not something you can argue with. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, in, in, in a world where we legitimately have people who are now attempting to demonstrate that the world is flat again. Well, it's like people who deny that there was a Holocaust. I mean, it's just it's, sure. it's all the same kind just, of how can you deny a fact? But right. somehow I mean, like, you we, do. We went up there in a <laughs> rocket and we took a picture. Right. It's round. Um <laughs> It's it's well, round. Wait, there, yeah, there some people, people up there. We didn't go up anywhere in a rocket. We didn't take pictures there, of anything. Stanley Kubrick is the one who, who did all of I that. Mean, there are people up there right now. Yeah, like they're up there now, no, they're and not. they're looking at it. That's a lot. And it's round. I mean, it's um, and that's what makes this so difficult to watch because if you are right, and the only people watching this movie, I think, are the ones who are continually frustrated by. The world just not getting it and refusing right. to get it. Um, I watched this right. with with my partner who is not American, uh, and he had a very different perspective. I mean, it, it's. I was watching the movie and I'm just like, oh God, this has been my life <laughs> and this yeah. is horrible. I mean, I, um, yeah. And he's sort of on the other the the other end going, wow. What's wrong with these people? Why are they debating this fact? Like, is this? Why are they debating? I don't, like, yeah. I kind of don't get this joke. Like, he laughed, but I don't think he's sure. ever really lived in that without before. the context. <laughs> Not like it I have. Work Not as like well. you have. Yeah. Um. So I guess you know, if, for those of you who haven't seen it, again, this is available on Netflix. It's it was one of the most streamed films of all time on Netflix, mm-hmm. which I think is, I hope, is a good thing. I hope that McKay's intended effect of this film would have that kind of reach, but I don't know. Um, But this is a film wherein uh, Jennifer Lawrence, who plays a graduate student in astrophysics, um, discovers a comet, uh, which it's, it's referred to interchangeably throughout the film, or at least in in a lot of the criticism I've seen. I don't know if people realize it was an asteroid. Was it a comet? A lot of people said asteroid, but it's, it's a comet, um, which again, I mean, I guess in, in terms of how the film is dealing with it, it doesn't really make a difference, but it's a comet that's extrasolar that is, is arcing toward the earth and is going to direct impact it yeah. with, I believe the, the number that um, that's, they eventually arrive upon is like 97.8%. This is absolutely going to happen. Yeah, another which, extinction in, in, event, you know, something right, that has in, happened before. Right. And in terms of science, 97% accurate means it's going to happen. Right. Um, and so like there, but the, so that happens. And then it's, it's really Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is this, this uh, Jennifer Lawrence's doctoral thesis advisor. Um, he does the math and figures out that this is an impact event and, and it is going to strike earth. Um, and so that is well enough, right? That's your standard sort of boilerplate plate setup for a dramatic thriller. But then this film takes a very hard left turn, much more in line with McKay's previous work where it becomes a political farce because now once they know this information, they attempt to take it to the appropriate channels, which in this case is like NASA, which the NASA promotes it to their, like the advisor to the president that says like, Hey, there's a space based threat. And so that gets run up. And then they eventually meet with the president played by Meryl Streep and her son. She's pretty good in this. She's, I don't think she's, 
I love Meryl Streep. I I love Yes, I mean because she was just greasy wrong. and awful and she plays such yes. a despicable person and I kind of love to see her do that cuz she does such a good job. And, the, and if anything that was my only issue with it is that this is a fair this is fairly typical of what you get from Meryl Streep these days. Mm-hmm. Um and I but I think she's playing to a very specific character, right? She is meant to be the the Donald Trump analog right i mean that's that's who she is um even to the point that she is is has has um her her nepotism has stretched that her (laughs) completely boneheaded and and qualificationless son is her chief of staff and he is uh, played by jonah hill so terrible and i kind of love it (laughs) so terrible so greasy uh, he has a speech at the end of the film as people are going through, like expressing their their hopes and wishes for this project that they've embarked upon to stop this cataclysmic event. And he's like, I want to say a prayer for all the stuff, <laughs> right? Like all the things in the world that we might lose, not the people, not the, the you know, the society, just the stuff. And I, uh, I and suppose that, everything you need to like know. that highlights, I guess, my issue with the movie is that sometimes it is almost too silly. Um, yes, it it really struggles to find that like, yeah. are we being are we being Vice, or are we being Anchorman? Because like, and this movie a, really goes back. The and moment forth. where Leonardo DiCaprio's character snaps on live television and is it, which is the climax of the film. Yeah. It's glorious. You know oh where he's goodness. just what the fuck is wrong with you people? That was so wonderful, but it was it was harrowing. I mean, it was it was awful. Because suddenly, you know, like I, I feel just every ounce of of anger and sadness about the past, you know, two years especially, just kind of bubble to the surface, and I'm like, holy shit, this really is the world that we live in. And then the movie comes back with Jonah Hill being absolutely over the top, you know, with his antagonistic relationship with you know, Jennifer Lawrence and everything. It just sure. it felt like. It was yo-yoing too much between very dark black comedy and kind of Saturday Night Live comedy. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much. So that is a really good sort of tone comparison for where the comedy in this movie is most of the time. It's it's very much an extended SNL sketch um, that is then peppered with surprisingly well wrought dramatic moments. Yeah. And it and it kind of just vacillates wildly in between. And and while I think you could make an argument for that being the tone, because it is this just like it's it's like it's fighting with itself to sort of emulate the way that as a society we are fighting with ourselves. We are yeah. ripping ourselves apart from the inside. And this film almost feels like it's also ripping itself apart from top to bottom. Like it doesn't know what it is or what it wants much like we don't. So I I think you could make an argument that it's kind of intentional, but whether or not it helps it be more effective as a film, I don't think it does. Yeah. It, it, well, I mean, it is very reflective of culture because, you know, again, I'm talk a lot about the pandemic just because that's, that's where my head goes. Um, but we have been making jokes. We have been silly about it. We have been trying to laugh our way through this tragedy. And I don't think it's helping. And I'm not sure that this movie was able to articulate that that's not helping because it indulges. Yeah, I mean, it, it, 
it tries desperately to to be against that kind of behavior, but yet it also is indulging in it to get its laughs. Yeah. And and that is a weird place to be. So I mean, when that speech comes from Leonardo DiCaprio, where he really does put you know a a, a finely acted pin in the conversation and the perspective that seemingly the filmmakers are taking on it, it doesn't necessarily have the same impact because the film itself has been presenting this sort of like jokey, jokey, fun, fun, ha 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 along with it. And, and it's, it's obviously intentional. They're, they're definitely saying like, this is not the way that this should be handled, but yet you can make the argument that the film, and and this is something that's been levied against McKay over and over again. It's like pick a lane, dude. Yeah. Are you the anchorman guy or are you a serious drama guy? Like, what do you want to be? And I don't necessarily feel like a film has to necessarily pick one or the other. You can certainly have a film that is both sort of darkly comedic and darkly funny, but, but yet still result, has things to say. But the result of that is going to be a mixed message. And you almost result, have to accept that as a filmmaker. You're going to present people right. with, with a 50-50 as opposed to a 60-40. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, but the result that people seem to want is that if they did that, it would just be an Aaron Sorkin movie. Right. We would just get another Aaron Sorkin movie where he's making these brilliantly worded speeches about a social issue. Um, we, we get the trial of the Chicago seven. Like that's what you get if you go fully that other direction. And I don't think McKay wants to be that. And I don't think he's necessarily interested in presenting these ideas in that fashion because as a humorist, as someone who has, you know, grown his career as a filmmaker through comedy, I think he understands that you can be funny and tell something serious about the world at the same time. Mm -hmm. But what he's struggling to do is find a good balance between those two things. And this movie doesn't really do it. Not super successfully. I I think it probably gets closer. Um, I I think the big short is pretty solid. I didn't enjoy vice. I I didn't. Well, mostly because I didn't care. Um, (laughs) I, I have, I don't know. It, Vice was fine. Like I didn't hate it. It's 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 one of those things. It it's okay. But I I really think this one was poised to you know the timeliness of it is is undeniable. So it could have really been a big breakthrough. And I don't necessarily think in terms of McKay's respect, right? As an as a director, I don't think that's necessarily going to come out of this all that clean. Yeah. But this film undeniably has excellent performances. Everybody is really close to the top of their game. Again, even saying that Meryl Streep is not necessarily like punching very much above her typical Meryl Streep weight. You're still getting Meryl Streep. Like at the end of the day, you that's a net positive for, for sure. I really liked Um, Timothy Chalamet's character. You know, he was probably the most surprising one. Uh, Chalamet has, I know he's been around for a while, you know, um, call me by your name. And, and you know, he's, he's, made his bona fides. Obviously he was fantastic in Dune, which we haven't really had much of a chance to talk about yet. Um, but I'm sure we will at some point in the near future. Um, Dune is fantastic. He's a wonderful Paul Atreides. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, but he was probably the most surprisingly effective character in the film. Um, because as, as, as a matter of course, as happens with people who break the kind of news that Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio end up breaking, 
you know, when society is tired of hearing it, you get ostracized, mm -hmm. right? Like we don't want to hear you anymore. And that's kind of what happens to her character fairly early on in the film. And she becomes a and meme. And so she's, yeah, she becomes a meme. She gets, gets left behind. Nobody takes her seriously. And she winds up sort of just like back home and, and not living her best life. In Ducoin, Illinois. Is it Ducoin? I nope. was trying to figure out. I knew it was like it was like central Illinois, um, but uh, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't pick up that it was Ducoin. That was spe this specific area. In fact, he wears a Ducoin racing T-shirt in oh, the the final part of the movie. Oh my gosh, that's right. So oh, that's right around where we're from. So that's where we're from. Yeah, that is that is uh, central to southern Illinois. For heck, yep. yeah, um, <laughs> heck and right. Yeah, we'll, we'll suss that out together down here in southern Illinois. Um, but so he is sort of a local kid who recognizes her, strikes up a conversation and eventually a relationship. And in a film that ha did not really do a great job of like keeping its characters consistent apart from Melanie Linsky. Oh my God. She's so good. Yeah. She's good in everything. She's barely in this and she's so good. Um, in what she does. I love her. Um, I think I'm going to start watching yellow jackets because she's in it. Um, it's that it's a Showtime show that people are comparing a lot to Lost, which I don't know is a good thing or bad thing. Um, <laughs> what are you saying? Anyway, I don't know. Is that? <laughs> I thought we all like hated Lost. Lost. Didn't, didn't we agree that that was bad? <laughs> didn't we? Was it? Wasn't that decided that the Lost sucks? Uh, okay, all right, never mind. Um, Tyler Perry was uh, fantastic in this. He was uh, Kate Blanchett with those fake teeth. Oh my God, she it's looked insane. Unbelievable. I, I didn't even recognize her at first. Yeah, I, I really appreciated. Um, so the one of the main sort of things that happens in the movie is these characters going on this morning show called The Daily Rip, um, which is great. Um, but one thing I did notice, and I've seen this pointed out, uh, the cups, when you look at The Daily Rip in reflection on their table, it says The Daily Lib. <laughs> Which I thought was clever, like a nice little like, oh, you think we're just talking about like these Fox News shows? No, we're not no. like the the other. You know, it's it's a little bit it's of, that all of it. both ciderism stuff that, that McKay also tries to engage in quite often. I mean, all media um, but is anyway. terrible, just so you know. Yeah, it's like he's terrible. pointing at everybody. It's not just the Fox News. But I thought that she, Kate Blanchett's character, because she's the, the blonde, you know, perfectly white teeth, immaculately dressed brilliant like that's the other thing that i thought that they captured is that a lot of people when they look at you know your your fox news hosts your laura ingrams you know your your ann coulters you know the etc etc and, and and on the other side too um the thing that often gets overlooked as they become memes is that these women are actually brilliant they're incredibly well educated and they have but they in just many have ways abysmal they have made terrible opinions <laughs> they have made active decisions yeah to have bad opinions. And that's sort of where Kate Blanchett's character is. And there's a great scene that sort of articulates just who she is and what she was capable of and how she has wound up as this. And it's, it's a nice little like poke where I mean, we had an entire movie about those women in bombshell. Um, and this movie in just Kate Blanchett's character, I think captures what it actually means to be that kind of television personality. Mm -hmm. And they spin a whole movie on it. <laughs> and this does better with just her character. Um, but in any case, Ariana she was Grande brilliant. Um, was great. Um, yeah. As the little I mean, I care. Star. 
I care so little about Ariana Grande, but again, I can't. Deny I love her music. Sort of I love her voice. She's she's yeah. very charming in all of her they, interviews. And then when she did, when she performs the song, that was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the song was actually insane. really good. But again, just sort of the pointlessness yeah. of all of it to hold a benefit with an <laughs> original song about a world ending event. Just, but it's what we would do. Yeah, like it's it's, it's what humanity what would, would do. do. Um, the only other piece of this that I guess we need to address is the tech billionaire component uh, played here by Mark Rylance <laughs> doing a weird sort of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, a little bit of Zuckerberg in there. Um, but he is a tech billionaire who runs a mobile company that's was it Bash Mobile mm-hmm. or something uh, or Brash? It's maybe? Bash. I don't remember Bash. Um, but he is a a tech billionaire who there is a plan to deal with this, this thing, right? Like it's, it's very much a dumb plan. It's a Michael Bay plan, but they have a plan and it's got like, what do you say? Like 72% chance of working. Yeah. And they call it off because a tech billionaire has a better plan and a beneficial plan where they harvest the comet for materials to make the world better. And this becomes like, the main thrust of the last half of the film. And it is totally is them, something that we would do. It's absolutely a thing we would do. They tell people like, this will solve all our problems. This will tell people that this comet, if we can harvest its materials, is going to make the United States, the wealthiest nation in the world. I, it, it's so plausible that it is gut wrenching. When it happened, I was like, yep, that is absolutely what would happen um if if something was to happen to derail a plan to solve it that would be it and it's it's brilliant rylance rylance is really restrained here um i don't know if it's a really great mark rylance performance he's kind of i mean i know we've mentioned this movie like four times already this podcast but he's kind of just riffing on the character that he played in ready player one but in Ready Player One, that character was kind of kind and benevolent, whereas here you can tell it's self-serving and and you know sort of secretly violent. But it's it's really the same sort of acting yeah. performance. Uh, also with fake teeth, so much fake teeth. In this. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, it was like they went like how how can we make you just the most unappealing that we possibly can? Fake teeth, it is. Put a bunch guys. of chiclets fake in teeth your mouth. Um, surprise, shockingly so. Um, but it's, this is a film that I feel is, is very timely. I feel it's very essential watching. Obviously a lot of people have watched it. Um, there has been a lot of back and forth, you know, critically about its quality. McKay has responded to a lot of it via his Twitter account, which I think is a mistake. Um, but the, the power of the message being delivered here is kind of undeniable. And it is one that is equal parts terrifying and accurate. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. My wife and I both, we just kind of started it on a lark. Like, Oh yeah, I heard this is a, it's a big thing. I know, you know, people are responding to it and, and we both were, I'm not going to say we enjoyed it. I don't think this is a movie that you enjoy. It's just, it hits too close to home to like it. Yeah. But I think you, if you're open to the ideas that it's trying to convey and the sort of pseudo silly goofy way that it chooses to present it those ideas. It was a very cathartic experience to watch it. 
Right. If you if this it's, has worn on you at all these last few years, these last six years, seven years, um, yeah, endless time. <laughs> yeah, if if that has worn you down, then then you will enjoy watching this movie because it's it's cleansing. Um, it's cleansing it's, to be able to laugh at some of these things. Um, sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I I I'm trying to look at the movie as just an opportunity to laugh at some of the absolute ridiculous tragedy that has come out of the world as of late. Yeah. It, it's a similar experience to the one I had in a similar Netflix watching experience last year when Bo Burnham released inside. Yes. It's that it's one really involved the a lot more crime kind of catharsis, me, which <laughs> yeah, it was much awkward. more weird. Like, this is more, more artifice. I didn't think I was but going it's... to cry so much when, when a man was singing about, being alone in his room like oh my god <laughs> i am also alone in my room um yeah but it's it's the same thing it's it's directly addressing this social thing that's happening to us right now through the lens of of a group in this case of artists um trying to sort of work their way through their own incredulity about the world that they live in and how can this be a thing how can we have fallen so far after reaching some of the heights that we've reached, how can we, how can we regress so fully to this? And it is just a shocking thing to consider and think about. Um, and don't look up is a great, is a great way to engage with those feelings if you so choose, but content warnings aware. Mm -hmm. This is a film that if you are not dealing with something like this pandemic, well, it is not going to help. Yeah. <laughs> It is not going to leave you feeling hopeful. Although I, I do think the final line of the film delivered again, Leonardo DiCaprio is one of the finest actors of perhaps any generation when the man is allowed to truly, to truly act, which I feel like he does for the first time in this film in a long time. Like Leonardo DiCaprio is great in everything he does. Please don't misunderstand me. But Leonardo DiCaprio is also an actor who is very aware of his own image and the image that he projects and the parts that he picked normally play very carefully into that. This one, he plays a schlubby astrophysicist from Michigan. Yeah. Right. Like, or Wisconsin. Like he, and he plays and it he really well. Plays it like play the beard. They have this guy in at the beginning is amazing. It's every and, Midwestern uh, the, man's beard. <laughs> it's every Midwestern man's beard who thinks he it's, does a good it's job. It's every academic beard. beard that I've ever seen. Yeah. Like it is, he is the most academic in that first scene of the movie. It's kind of amazing. It's incredible. And it's it, it's one of those things that reminds you very quickly that oh yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio is actually a really fantastic actor. Yeah. Even though we shouldn't need to be reminded. I think it's easy to forget because he's been such a sort of cultural mainstay for the last 25 years um longer even but yeah really i mean early 90s i guess um so 30 ish so i mean it's 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 shocking but um it's it's a good film uh, i'm not gonna say it's a great film I, I think the ending the the post credit sequence if you hang around for it will give you a, a couple of final <laughs> little giggles um but it's again it makes perfect sense because the well i'm not gonna say anything but if if there were to be people who would escape something like this and make it away, they would not be the people that you would want surviving yeah. and setting up a new society. They would be the wrong people for that because the people at the top in our current society are not the people that you would want at the bottom 
in a new society mm -hmm. because they would have zero skills equipped <laughs> to survive in a and new the, world. And the film makes a very pointed uh, case for that. So uh, in any case, don't look up another sort of great. Uh, I am amazed now at the films that we get on streaming first. Yeah. Uh, these are movies that we would have had to go to see in theaters and then seen in Netflix six months later, but now we just get them. You know, we could be much harder awesome. on this movie if we had paid, you know, $14 to go to a movie theater to see it. But instead it's just on Netflix and you all have Netflix. Don't lie to me. You Everybody all do. <laughs> yeah, we all do. We're not going to pretend. And if you don't, it'll be on another service that you do have. Probably in short order. Oh, and shout out to Rob Morgan, who was fantastic. Loved yeah. every scene that he was in as uh, Dr. Oglethorpe. Just loved him. Thought he was really Yeah, he, uh, he carried a lot of that, of the dramatic heft of that movie. He doesn't get a lot of comedy. He gets a lot more of the, like, staring at people being like, wait, really? Yeah, he has to play the like, straight man. Really? But yeah, I have he's... such respect for someone who can play a straight man and do it well in a movie like this. Yes. And, and he definitely does do it well. Uh, again, the ending scene, he's, he's present for that as well. And I think he just brings a lot to it. Um, it's, it's good. Like I said, this is a movie that I have definitely thought about extensively since I watched it. It is, it has been on the cusp of my mind as things happen. And, and at some point again, you know, sort of like with the matrix resurrections, as we look back historically at this very, very raw time in human history in general, but American history specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I think films like don't look up will become a way for us to contextualize these feelings in this, this moment. Um, as I think a lot of the art being produced right now will, but don't look up will be one that allows, if not the most accurate portrayal, it will allow for conversations about what was going on with us as a society and as a, as a, it's going to be the part of our time of our capsule machine. Yeah, if if we survive long enough to have, <laughs> yes, um, which I guess is always the question. Uh, all right, well, that's our our you know current film wrap up, uh, the movies that we've seen and enjoyed uh, over the past couple of weeks, um, because you know a lot of people chose to drop stuff during the holiday break, which is not surprising, especially for streaming services. But I think um, there's quite a bit out there right now that I'm engaging with. There's a lot of TV shows that I'm, I'm trying to catch up with uh, only murders in the building, which I just finished last night. and was very enjoyable. Um, you know, in contextualizing it against something like don't look up, it's a fun, mostly light romp with uh, Steve Martin and Martin Selena Short. Gomez and Martin short, uh, which Martin short, he does some things in this that I have not seen him do as a comedian since the eighties and nineties. Just I really want those vote, those vocal expressions. Uh, he does his like Ed Grimley snort <laughs> a bunch of times. Just the, <laughs> the thing that he's so good at. And I apologize listeners if that was disturbing to you, but that's <laughs> like the, that's just, it's a thing because I, I loved his Ed Grimley character when I was a kid. Like I yeah. spent so much time trying to emulate that voice and those mannerisms because I just thought it was such gold. And, and he brings a little bit of that back to the Oliver Putnam character that he portrays here. Not, not to that length, right? It's not that kind of like constructed sketch comedy character, but you can tell he's pulling all of his, from all of the tricks in his bag. And it's, it's very fun. Um, so yeah, only murders in the building, high recommendation, so much fun, just a great time. It's a Hulu exclusive. So you got to have Hulu on that one. Um, 
uh, a, a, I mentioned this show to you the last time we chatted, but uh, a show on, I guess it's on Hulu as well, but it's a Canadian show called Cardinal, um, starring Billy Campbell, um, the, the Rocketeer. Yeah. Um, which oh, is yeah. why I started watching it, because <laughs> I'll watch the Rocketeer do anything, apparently. Um, but uh, Billy Campbell, as a, a sort of older police detective in a small town in northern Ontario called Algonquin Bay, which apparently is just a stand-in for North Bay, Ontario, where the author of the books grew up, um, just sort of that straightforward serial killer versus cops kind of thing. Uh, they did three seasons, very well written, very well shot. Uh, one of the better looking sort of serial killer dramas I've watched in a while. And most of them look okay, but this one just does a lot with like deep focus. There's a lot of shots where characters will walk from out of focus into focus and it's, and like directly into camera. It's just a really interesting visual presentation and it kind of holds through the entire series. Uh, it's just six episodes a season, three seasons. Just a good one of those, right? Serial killer dramas are all over the place now. Generally, they're all kind of the same, um, but I really enjoyed it. It's great performances. Campbell is fantastic. Um, it's really solid. Another, like, you know, if you've got Hulu, give it a shot. See what you think kind of deal. Nice. The only thing it does, and this I'm realizing is a super big pet peeve with me when it comes to, like, hunt for killer dramas. I've even put books down when it does this. And this is, and it's bad because most serial killer books do this. I want, and maybe I just need to write this. Maybe that's what I'm telling myself. I want a story where we never have a section devoted to the perspective of the killer. I don't want to know anything about the killer. I want to stay with, maybe this is like an Agatha Christie thing. Like maybe it goes all the way back to my, my love of, of those stories. And, and even she broke this from time to time, but like, I just want to stay with, the detectives who are chasing the killer. I don't want to go and spend time with the killer and like what they're doing and what they're up to. And then it becomes this cat and mouse thing where it's like, we know who the serial killer is. The heroes don't know who the serial killer is. And then it becomes when will the heroes find out who the serial killers are. Right. Cause the only benefit when you do that, in my opinion, is that you then get those near misses where like the serial killers, like in the background at the grocery store and the guy just doesn't know. And those aren't very satisfying. So I just, I, I want serial killer drama where we don't know who the serial killer is until the detectives or the heroes or whoever know who the serial killer is. Like yeah. I, the moment it feels like that. And it feels like that there used to be serial killer shows that were like that. Yes. And but then now we, and, and we it's love just villains. Gone. We love bad guys yeah. and we want to know more about bad guys. I think it's all part of that and, and humanizing yeah, the, of the Yeah. I just, I don't want it. I mean, I, I Cardinal does it and it's fine. I, I didn't hate it. They were done well. The killers were interesting enough that I didn't just want to skip those chapters, quote unquote, so to speak. Um, but I, I just miss that kind of like, okay, we've got this enigmatic killer who's out there. We don't know who he is. Um, I guess really I want seven. Yeah. Like I just want seven. Like, cause they never figure out who the guy is. No. They, the guy walks in at the end of the movie and says, it's me. Right. They have, cause honestly, in most of these cases, that's how it goes. Cause like if the serial killer is good at what they do, you'll never know who they are. Yeah. I guess that's kind of the point. And then figuring out who they are is, is, is a matter of really good police work and detective work. 
anyway, I don't know. So I guess seven is just what I think <laughs> of when I think of serial killer hunt movies. And, and I just want them to do that again, but nobody is willing to do that because now we want to, if, if seven was made now by anybody, not David Fincher, we would spend half the movie with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman in the library. And then we would spend half the movie with John Doe in his weird little apartment writing in notebooks. Yeah. And we would see what, like and what it kind of, terrible. it would be right. Think of how terrible that movie would be if we knew who John Doe I was. I mean, that's what I love about, right? you know, another Fincher movie, Zodiac. That's what I love about it. Is it that's true? There, yeah. we we still true. don't know who that was. I mean, don't we know. basically do, but we still don't. Um, and so that mystery was just dragged out, and that did involve a lot of brilliant police work. Um, right. And they still never found out. Could never prove it. It's just, it just blows my mind. I, I don't know. I want more serial killer drama like that. That's just because it teases out the mystery. So request longer. from Tim. Yeah. It just once once I know who it is, even if I if you, even if they haven't been caught, it just lowers the tension for me so much. Yeah. Because then, as a as a viewer, I don't have to watch carefully anymore. Because that's the other rewarding thing about Seven. If you watch Seven carefully, especially on a rewatch, you see where he was right the whole time. Like he was always there, um, and and you just didn't know because he was just a guy in the background. But the moment you highlight him, zoom in on his face and be like, ding, ding, ding. It's this guy. You ruin all that tension. Yeah. All of it dissipates. And it just, it, I don't know. It doesn't work as well for me as that traditional sort of like chase for the serial killer novel. Um, and it seems like even novels used to do that in the past. Like I'm thinking back to like the early Lincoln rhyme stuff, like the Jeffrey Deaver. It seemed like you just didn't know who the killer was until like they caught the guy. Like it was, and I'm probably misremembering that, but I read a recent Jeffrey Deaver book and I couldn't even finish it because I was like, this is <laughs> so bad. And I'm sure the other ones were bad too, but man, it was like, he was like a tattoo artist or something. Mm-hmm. And he was like trying to find skin to tattoo on. And I was like, what? Oh, okay. I guess. Running out of I, ideas. Was, yeah. I don't know. Popular fiction for you, I guess. <laughs> can't, we can't all be James Patterson with our endless outline. <laughs> All right, we got a what a lawyer this time. Is it a lawyer? Uh, what does a lawyer, lawyer. do? Uh, yeah, it's a lawyer. Uh, he uh, he's trying to convict a mobster, I guess. Mob. He just a has mobster? a big terrorist. whiteboard. Terrorist, terrorist. Yes, put a terrorist over there, Steve. Um, he's trying to convict a terrorist. The terrorist's family is. I'm gonna go with Mad. Terrorist family Mad. Fiction Mad Libs. The lawyer. Um, attacking the lawyer. Uh, okay, that'll get us what two sixty pages. 275 all right outline it for me terry i'll I'll write it up next week (laughs) it's just like it's like whatever i don't know anyway uh so yeah it's but cardinal is still still really good especially if you have any affection for the rocketeer because billy campbell is still i do (laughs) chef's kiss uh all right so if anybody wants to find you on social media Catherine, and let you know about all of your uh bad choices for all this new media that you've watched where can they do that uh, you can find me on Twitter at Baskinator. Nice. And if uh, you want to find me and yell at me about my opinions on Don't Look Up or The Matrix Resurrections, uh, you can do that at T Baskin. Uh, and of course, together you can get us at F Peace Theater or you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. Um, so we will be back next week with a discussion of another uh, quote unquote classic film. This one, <laughs> uh, Toby Hooper's. The Mangler. I'm going to make it a um, classic. 
That's right. We'll fight to make it a classic. A Stephen King adaptation from the mid-90s uh, during Toby Hooper's dark period uh, before <laughs> he retired from directing and moved to Europe and pretended like movies weren't a thing anymore. Um, but we will chat about The Mangler next week and uh, we will be back then. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.